This is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I am so excited that you've joined us to listen to this lesson, which is designed to help us glorify, honor, and serve God. Let me ask you a shockingly honest question. Have you ever felt like your biggest opponent in serving the Lord is the Lord himself? Have you ever wondered why God didn't make things easier for you? You're not alone. Many people have felt like this. Does the Bible present this sort of attitude? Yes, it does. We can turn to the Scripture and find help when we feel like this. In fact, the lesson that you're about to hear examines a story that exactly demonstrates this scenario and provides lessons that we can learn. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, and let's learn from Jacob when he wrestled with God to help us understand how to respond when we feel like God is the one fighting against us. We sing some awesome songs, I think. Songs of comfort and nurturing and love. We talk about how God takes care of us. And yet, can I just be shockingly honest with you for just a moment? And ask you to be shockingly honest with yourself? Are there ever any times when we sing those songs... But as we leave the assembly, we say to ourselves, you know, those songs are really nice. And there's some wonderful platitudes, and they're good for church. But that's just not how real life works. Are there ever any times when we come into the assemblies and we're dressed neatly and we're smiling brightly, and we've got that everything is fine face on, and yet... We're just mouthing the words of the songs because deep down inside we don't really believe them. And as we listen to them, we don't really feel that that's really how life works. I mean, after all, it's one thing to sing that Jesus is a shelter in the time of storm. But do we really believe that when we've had to abandon our homes because they've been ravaged by hurricanes or tornadoes or floods or fires? Or what about, oh, thou fount of every blessing when we're leaving the hospital with our first, second, or third miscarriage? Or what about it pays to serve Jesus when we know that tomorrow we have to send off our 100th resume because yesterday we received our 99th rejection? Peace, perfect peace. Do we really believe that one when we've been the victim of abuse or robbery or rape or who knows what else has happened? Precious memories. How easily do we sing precious memories when our memories are actually filled with abusive parents, destructive relationships and pain? How easy is it to sing, I want to walk with the King when sometimes it feels like it's the king who doesn't want us walking with him. Without him, I would be nothing. When with him, sometimes I still feel like nothing. And when we have that going on inside, we don't want to lean on the everlasting arms or stand on the promises or have just a closer walk with Him. In fact, in times like that, what we want to do is run from His searching gaze. We don't want to linger. 
with Christ, but become again charmed by the world's delights. And how many people have gotten to that situation and run back to the world? How many of us have been tempted to turn to sin again because of those kinds of feelings? Drugs and alcohol, pornography and sexual immorality, material goods and pleasures. I know some of us have, have never had those feelings and, and, and you've been so spiritually strong that, that you just don't comprehend that thought, but, but some of us have been there. And I wish that I could tell you that if you're there right now, that tomorrow's another day. I wish I could tell you that there is just some amazingly easy formula that you could follow to just make everything better from this point on. But I can't do that. However, I can share a story. A story that I think helps when we have that feeling that God is actually fighting against us. And that story is found in Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 32. This is a story that demonstrates to us that when we have those feelings, we're not unspiritual. That when we have those thoughts and when we're at that point in life, we're not ungodly. It's a story that I think kind of turns our common idea of what being a Christian is supposed to be like on its head and says, wait a minute, here's real life and here's what it's like to serve God in real life. Genesis chapter 32, beginning at verse 24, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of the hip. Before we actually look at that story, let's back up and look at Jacob's story. And as we go through this story, sometimes I'm afraid because we know these stories so well, we just plow right through them. But let's stop and just think for a moment. If we were Jacob, what if the typical modern American had been Jacob? How would we feel as we're moving through Jacob's life? And what would we think and how would we respond and react to God and what's going on there? Well, remember way back in Genesis chapter 25, Jacob's mother had been barren and Isaac prayed for Rebekah and God blessed them and she had twins. But they seemed to be struggling inside, and so she appealed to God, what's going on? And God said, well, you've got two nations in you. And the older is going to serve the younger. The younger one's going to be the greater one. Now, as we just start off the story right there, that tells us that there's got to be something about this younger child. He's going to lead a charmed life. A life of promise. A life of God's blessing. He's got the promise of blessing right there before he's even born. But is that the way it really works? 
He comes into the world, and of course Esau is born first. But Jacob comes out holding on to his heel, and so they named him Jacob, which means supplanter, or he who grabs by the heel. And I have to imagine, though I can't be sure, but I have to imagine that Rebecca, who favored Jacob, told Jacob about this promise from beforehand. And yet, what has Jacob got to think about this? How is this possibly going to work? I'm the younger one. I don't get the special blessing. I don't get the double portion of the birthright. When Dad dies, I don't get to be the head of the family. How on earth can this possibly come to pass? And so the wheels start turning and eventually we know he gets the birthright because he takes advantage of Esau's hunger. He gets the blessing because at his mother's direction he takes advantage of his father's failing eyesight. But that, uh, that irritates Esau a little bit. And Esau decides he's going to kill him. And so instead of being able to stay around and become this great nation, he has to run for his life. But on his way, at a place called Luz, he has a dream, and he sees a ladder, and God, the messenger of God, speaks to him and says, listen, I'm going to be with you. You're going to go off into this foreign land, but you're going to come back, and I am going to make you a great nation. This land that you're sleeping on right now, this is going to be your land. It's going to belong to your descendants. What a promised blessing. You're going to go, but you're going to come back. And all of this is going to end up being yours and your family's. And so from that point, it sounds to us as though things are going to be looking pretty good for Jacob in time to come. So he gets over to Pat and Aram, he finds his family, and he meets the woman he falls in love with, the woman he's going to marry, Rachel. And he goes to her father, his uncle, and they come up with a deal, because he doesn't have anything to give him for a dowry, so he says, well, I'll work for you for seven years, and I'll marry her. And so for seven years, he toils, and he works. And along comes the wonderful night when he's finally going to receive this beginning of his blessing, when he's finally going to receive his wife, and he's going to be able to start producing those descendants. And, and listen, I've got to tell you, I really don't know how this worked. I don't understand it. But the way they did things back then, he woke up the next morning, and lo and behold, it's not Rachel. And I just want you to think for a moment how we would have felt in that situation. How would typical... Average Americans have responded when they've worked seven years to be married to their dream girl and they ended up with something else. God, how could you let this happen? Isn't that what folks today would ask? And so he comes up with another deal. Well, we'll go ahead and work another seven years so that I can have the wife that I really want. And so he works for 14 years. He's married to Rachel and Leah, sisters that argue and compete. Now, if you think you have family trouble, can you imagine what it would be like to be married to two sisters or two brothers that are constantly arguing and fighting and competing with one another? I mean, that's family strife. If you've ever thought about leaving your family, do you think Jacob may have ever thought about it? You think Jacob ever went to bed at night and said, man, I can't handle another day of this. How could you let it come to this, God? I thought I, thought I had all these blessings promised to me. And then he starts having kids. And keeps having kids. And keeps having kids. And keeps on having kids. And you know all the struggles that we have with just our two or three. Can you imagine what it must have been like with twelve? Thirteen, actually, eventually. He works off those 14 years. He wants to leave. He goes to Laban and says, I'm ready to go. And Laban says, oh, please stay. And so he says, all right, I'll stay. I'll work for you. And they, re- they worked up their system of payment. 
And as you go through what happens next, I think, again, we read through it and we think that, well, Jacob was just on a one-way path up to prosperity and wealth because we see the big picture and we know how it ends. But let's stop here for a moment and think about what happened. According to Genesis 31, Laban changed his wages ten times. What that would be saying for is us is if, uh, if you started working for me and I said to you, okay, I'm going to pay you hourly. And so you start working and you work hard and you're working lots of hours and those, uh, that hourly wage starts getting to be a lot and you're starting to accumulate some and you're starting to get, uh, get out of debt and get your feet uh, head above water and get your feet on the ground and then all of a sudden I say, well, you know, this, this hourly wage thing's going to be a little bit much. I think I'm going to put you on salary and cut you way back. And then we start having raises and things start going well and you're getting your head back above water and things are going all right. And then I say, you know what? That's getting to be pretty high too. I think I'm going to put you on commission. And so you start selling and you start working and you start making lots of money and lots of sales and the commissions start going up. And I say, man, you know, I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you company stock. And then the stock for the company starts being worth something and you're selling it off and you're starting to get ahead again and things are moving on. And then I come along and say, you know what, actually, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to give you interest in the company and one day when I sell it, I'll, I'll give you the money for your percentage. That's what's happening to Jacob here. When he starts getting ahead and things start going positively, Laban changes his wages. And yet, he continues on. And finally... God comes to him and says, it's time to go home. I'll be with you. You go on home. I'll, I'll get you there. And so Jacob calls his wives to him and he says, here's what happened. Here's how your dad's treated me. Here's what my God has said. We're going back to my home. And they decide to go with him and they sneak off and then here comes Laban in hot pursuit. Now God has said, I'm going to be with you, Jacob. But here comes Laban in hot pursuit. But God does take care of that. Laban backs off. They have a sacrifice, a memorial meal, come to agreement. Jacob moves on. But out of the frying pan into the fire, he gets closer to home and he sends messengers to his brother Esau because, remember, Esau wanted to kill him. But, you know, that was a long time ago, 20 years or more. I mean, surely by now Esau's forgotten all that birthright and blessing stuff. But let's just make sure. We're going to send messengers and let them know we're on our way. And so the messengers come back. And they say, oh yeah, Esau is looking forward to you coming home, Jacob. He's got 400 buddies coming with him. Now let's just stop and think from Jacob's perspective. I don't think that Jacob viewed that this was Esau saying, you know, I, for 20 years I've wanted you to meet my best 400 friends. This is an army. And for all the blessings that God has given Jacob, he doesn't have an army. He's got lots of kid and kids and he's got lots of sheep. And if Esau comes at him with 400 men ready to kill him, that's it. It's over. But God, you promised you were going to get me home. And so, we turn to Genesis chapter 32. And Jacob does the only thing he knows how to do. And in chapter 32 of Genesis and verse 9, he prays, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. 
Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Then he'll come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. When Jacob had left his home and his family, God showed him the vision. He prayed, yeah, if you bring me back, I'll serve you. But he's grown since then. Now he's praying, God, I don't deserve anything you've done for me. It's been all your mercy. And looking back over it, I can see your mercy. But here comes Esau. You promised to get me home. I know I don't deserve it. But please keep your promise. And then he comes up with a strategy to try to save at least some of the family and he divides them up into companies and he sends some of them on ahead and some behind so that if one company gets attacked, the other one can flee. And finally, he's the only one left to cross the river. But before he crosses the river, here comes the messenger of God, seemingly the answer to his prayer. Does the messenger of God come to him and part the waters of the Jabbok and allow him to walk through on dry land? Does the messenger of God come to him and strengthen him and and minister to his spirit so that he can have all kinds of confidence? Does the messenger of God come to him and say, look, Jacob, it's going to be all right. God's with you. No, the messenger of God comes and attacks him. I think one of the reasons that this passage is so troubling to us and causes so many problems is because as we read it, we're trying to make sense of it. Which is the natural response. But before we try to make sense of what's going on in this passage in entirety, let's just stop for a moment and allow the imagery to wash over us and think. Isn't that exactly how we feel sometimes? That God has promised us all these blessings... And now here we are wanting to enter in those blessings and the biggest obstacle that stands in our way is God and His messenger Himself? We have this idea that the God who has promised all these blessings ought to be making it easier for us. And yet He allows us to go through layoffs on the job, through family turmoil. He allows us to go through sickness and death. He allows us to have all kinds of trouble as we're trying to understand His Word. One of the questions that came up in Bible class this morning was about how confusing some of it is. We want the blessings of God, and yet at times doesn't it feel like God is the one who is standing between us? Why doesn't He do something about this? And then we come to the story. And the messenger of God was trying to prevail against Jacob and he couldn't. Because Jacob wouldn't let go. And so the messenger of God reached out and he touched Jacob on the hollow of the socket of his thigh, his hip, and dislocated it. He injured him. The God who promised to bless him injures him. And he carries that with him for the rest of his life. But Jacob still hangs on. And the messenger says to him, let go. And Jacob says, no way. Not until you bless me. And at that point, the messenger of God, some suggest God himself, that the messenger of God means God himself in this visible form, the messenger of God's reality. Possibility. Blesses him and says, no longer will you be Jacob. 
But now you're going to be Israel because you've striven with God and with man and you have prevailed. And he limps across the ford of the river and he enters the promised land and he meets Esau who does not attack him and he goes on to become the father of a great nation and receive the blessing. What happened there? What are the lessons that we learn when we feel like God is fighting against us and the wrestling match? The first thing we learn is that obtaining God's promises is not always easy. We have the idea that the all-powerful, all-good God ought to make our entire lives all easy. That's just not the way it works. It's a struggle to obtain many of the blessings of God. And do you remember what Paul said in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22? In Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, it said, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We enter God's blessing. The kingdom of heaven, excuse me. No, it is kingdom of God. We must enter the kingdom of God. We have the idea that entering the kingdom of God, getting into the blessing of God and into heaven ought to be easy. But what Paul points out is that we enter that through tribulation, not through a rose garden. And for us today, we want the comforting message of, listen, life gets better as the more faithful you get. And that's just not always true. Paul strengthened them not by saying, oh, it'll get better tomorrow. He strengthened them by saying, look, this is, just, this is the way life is. God is still with you. And they accepted it. The second lesson that we learned is that sometimes it will in fact feel like God is our opponent. I know that some of you have never felt this, and some of you are saying, you know, this is just absolutely the craziest thing I have ever heard, and you're already planning on calling the elders afterwards to question, you know, why have we got this joker up here preaching this nonsense? But stop for a moment and ask some of your brethren if they have not ever felt like this. Sometimes it feels like God is the opponent. And if you've ever felt that way, it doesn't mean you're ungodly and unspiritual. Look at Psalm 88. Psalm 88. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before You. Let my prayer come before You. Incline Your ear to my cry. For my soul has had enough troubles, and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I've become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they're cut off from your hand. So far, well, life is bad. Now notice what he says, verse 6. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in an abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you, and Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. 
Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me all together. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. Now, you know, most psalms that start like that end with, but you made it all okay yesterday. This one doesn't. That is amazing. And yet, notice how he started. O Lord, the God of my salvation. Even though he viewed God as the opponent, he still knew where salvation was from and where the ultimate blessing was from. And that's why he continued to cry out to him. Sometimes it does feel like God is the opponent. Sometimes we will get injured on our way to the blessing. The messenger of God reaches out and touches his hip socket and leaves him with a wound that he deals with for the rest of his life. In fact, not only that he deals with for the rest of his life, but the Israelites remember for the rest of their lives because they won't even eat that part of the animal's body. He was injured. I'll tell you what came to my mind when I thought of that was Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Second Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness, chapter 12, verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Here was Paul injured on the way to the blessing, and he prays three times, God, please take it away from me. And God says, no. And just leaves it there. Sometimes on the trip to the blessing, we get injured. And we endure wounds. God will let our struggle be more than we want to deal with. But never more than we can deal with. One of the things that has always caused me problems in this verse, in this story, is here's the messenger of God. Says he can't prevail against Jacob. Now I know that's not true. Not in the ultimate sense. I mean the fact is anybody who could reach out and just touch the hip socket and throw it out of joint could have touched the next socket, right? And thrown it out of joint. When it says that he couldn't prevail against Jacob, it's clear that his goal must not be to try to defeat Jacob. His goal is not to try to kill Jacob, because if that had been his goal, he could have done it, and he would have prevailed like that. What was his goal? I'll tell you what, he was testing Jacob's resolve. And he was making it tough enough to test Jacob to see if Jacob would let go. And go back to Pat and Aaron. And he gave him more than he wanted to deal with. But he didn't give him more than he could deal with. Because if he had absolutely wanted to throw Jacob off, he could have. And I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. On our road to the blessing, God will allow us to struggle with more than we want to deal with. 
but not more than we can deal with. God will not give us every blessing we ask for or every blessing He gives others. I find it interesting, even after He blesses Jacob and says, your name's no longer Jacob, it'll be Israel because you've striven with God and man and you've prevailed. Jacob says, well, tell me your name. And he says, no. But I remember Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3. And in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3, God speaking to Moses says, And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, Jehovah, I did not make myself known to them. And now whether we're going to view this messenger as strictly an angelic being or as God Himself in visible form, and that's, that's the messenger, either way, if it's just an angel, the angel wouldn't even give him his name, but God Himself gave Moses the name, his name. So, while God is going to bless us, He's not going to give us everything we want. And He's not going to bless us like He blesses everybody else. I think about Peter at the end of John. After Jesus had talked to him, remember he looked at John and said, what about that man? Remember in John 21, Jesus' words? He said, look, if I want him to stay till I return, what is that to you? You just serve me. And so as we're on this trip to the blessing, don't spend all your time looking around at everybody else and how things are different for you than for them or how you haven't gotten everything you want because God will bless us, but He won't give us everything we want. And He's not going to bless us the same way He does everybody else. But finally, and this is the most important lesson, God will bless us if we hang on to Him no matter what. I believe that that's the message of Genesis 32, 24 through 32. God will bless us if we hang on to Him no matter what. God wants to bless us. But God is not in the business of just handing out candy to children. God is in the business of blessing those who want to be blessed. He's in the business of blessing those who will continue to hold on to Him no matter what He allows to happen in this life. So often today we have an if-only mindset. God, if only You'll heal this hip socket, then I'll serve You. If only You'll get me across this Javik River, then I'll serve You. If only, God, You'll deliver me from Esau, then I will serve You. But when we look at these Bible saints... They had an even-though approach. Heman. Even though, God, you've done all these things against me. Heman, by the way, was the guy who wrote Psalm 88. Heman, even though you've done all these things, you're still the God of my salvation. Jacob, even though you're sitting here wrestling with me, I am going to hang on to you until you bless me. Probably nobody says it better than Job in Job chapter 13 and verse 15. Job chapter 13 and verse 15. Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. We say, Lord, if only You'll keep me alive, I'll serve You. Job said, even if You kill me, God, I'm going to hope in You. This is the lesson. God will bless us if we hang on. It's almost... As if God is saying, 
as we cry out to Him, Father, please bless us. It's almost like He's looking down saying, I really want to, but first I need to know how badly you want it. How badly do you want the blessing? When God tested Jacob, He couldn't prevail against him because Jacob wanted the blessing bad. Do we want His blessing that badly? Or when we hit bumps in the road, are we going to be willing to hand over the blessing and walk the other way? I know there are times. I know there are times when we feel like God is the one wrestling against us. But all those songs that we started off with, though at times they don't seem like reality, they're teaching us the truth. We just have to hang on. And so the question for you this morning is, how badly do you really want God's blessing? I hope this lesson has been beneficial to you and is something that's helped increase your faith in God and helped increase your commitment to God. Please, whatever you do, hang on to God and His will. He is the God of salvation. Let's remember what we learned from Jacob wrestling with the angel. First, it's not always easy pursuing the blessings of God. Second, sometimes it will feel like God is our opponent. Third, sometimes on the path to the blessing, we will be wounded. Fourth, God may allow us to endure more struggle and trauma and trial than we want, but never more than we can handle. Fifth, He will not give us everything we want, and He will not give us every blessing that He gives everyone else. But sixth and finally, God will bless us if we hold on to Him no matter what happens. If you have any questions about Jacob or other characters in the Bible, or about our walk with God or about the Franklin Church of Christ, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359 or you may contact us through our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody is giving you this lesson on audio tape or on CD. If that's the case, please go to this website that I just mentioned, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have many other lessons there that you're free to download, both in audio and outline format. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him, but more importantly, may you richly bless God.